0: please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. Be in Isaiah chapter 42 today, looking at the first nine verses. And what we would like to take a look at today is the servant's justice. We come to the first of four or five, depending on how you count them, servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And this one in Isaiah 42 is particularly interesting. Last time we started the context out in Isaiah chapter 40, and Isaiah chapter 40 had a lot of content. And in fact, it went rather long just looking at simply what was there. But each and every point there in Isaiah 40 starts a thread that carries through the rest of the book. And so we'll be looking more in-depth at each one of those things individually, and we'll have a, a series of sermons that are much more concise, much more focused in what they have to bring. So last time we looked at the fact that Uh, He was instructing the people of Israel. He, He was pronouncing comfort upon them and instructing them to behold their God. The key to comfort is to look to God, who he is and what he does. And that brings us the encouragement that we need. And we looked at his attributes, how he's forgiving and accessible and eternal and mighty and personal and generous. And we looked at all those things and, and he is comforting Israel by the words of Isaiah here in the 40s here, chapter 40 until about chapter 45, where he's clearly bringing in focus what he is doing in the world because this instruction through Isaiah is meant to carry them through a time when they will actually end up in exile. Now, Isaiah didn't live until that time, but his writing is clearly pointed to a time when they will be so discouraged, having so failed in their covenant, having so messed up with God that he's taken them out of their land. But now they need the message of, but I'm God. And I sent the people who took you out of your land, and I'm sending the people who will bring you back. And you are still my people, and I will reestablish you, and I will still do wonderful things in the earth. And that's the kind of overarching idea here we have in the 40s. Well, right in the middle of this, in Isaiah chapter 42, we see he introduces a servant. Now, he's referred to Israel as his servant before, but this is something utterly different, as we'll see. And as I read the first nine verses of of chapter 42, here's what I want you to notice. The first four verses is the Lord speaking to Israel about his servant. Then verses five through seven is the Lord is addressing the servant regarding his mission. And so in those verses, the you that you see there is singular. He's addressing the servant in those verses. And then verses eight and nine, the Lord turns back to Israel and addresses them again to give them a broad understanding of what it is that he is doing. And I want to point out, first thing, as we get to chapter 42, verse 1, is simply this. Um, It begins with, Behold, my servant. We talked about this some last time when we talked about uh, the fact that he says, Behold, your God. He is drawing attention to it. It, The purpose of what follows, therefore, is made for you to really soak it in, to really pay attention, to really see what he's saying about the servant. And he is, in essence, saying, pay attention. I want to tell you about my servant. So here's what he says. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench he will faithfully bring forth justice he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law thus says god the lord I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things now I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for sending forth your servant. We pray this day as you put your spirit upon Jesus Christ to do the ministry that you have for him, that you will send it to his people, Lord, that we may understand your word. Fill us with it that we may proclaim it properly. And Lord, I pray that you will give us your word and give us understanding of your word. And as the word of God is the tool of Jesus the Almighty, so it is the raw material for the building of the church. Pray, Lord, that you will make yourself known this day and be glorified in our message. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Today's point is is very simply this, that, uh, that Jesus, Jesus Christ is assigned the task of reordering the universe according to the will of God that's a big deal. And I think we say a lot of things about Jesus and who he is and what he has done. But do we often stand back and look at the big picture, if you will? Do we often enough take a look at what is, what is it really doing here? What, what, why did Jesus come? And what is the gospel all about? And what is he up to today? And it is very simply this. He is assigned the task of reordering the universe according to the will of God. Now, let's take a look from these verses uh, how we understand that. The first is to establish the identity of the servant. If we can establish the identity of the servant, we'll come quite a ways in understanding this. The identity of the servant, the first question we have to ask, being here in the context of Isaiah, he is speaking to Israel. He's saying a great many things about Israel. The question is, is it Israel? Is Israel the servant he's talking about? Well, an argument for Israel as being the servant would come from looking at uh, the context in Isaiah chapter 41, verses 8 through 10. And in there, we see this being said, um, we see that you Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. So here Israel's clearly called the servant, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner saying to you, you are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so people that argue for this will look later, you know, a little further down in this chapter, starting about verse 14 or so. It says this, it says, fear not, you worm, Jacob. <laughs> it refers to Israel as a worm. Um, fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them and you shall make the hills like chaff. So here's a message that the Lord is wielding Israel as a tool for judging the nations, separating the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. And he goes on, you shall winnow them and the wind shall carry them away and the tempest shall scatter them and you shall rejoice in the Lord in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. And so here we have Verses, But some of this language is repurposed in the New Testament to be speaking of Jesus Christ. So he is speaking these things of Israel in that Israel will ultimately bring forth Jesus. And that Jesus will be the Christ, the Son of God, who will actually accomplish these things. So it's speaking, yes, of Israel the servant this way, but then chapter 42 comes along and says some utterly different things about this particular servant that it speaks of in 42. In other words, I believe it to be more specific. First of all, what it says in chapter 42 about this servant is a little too idealistic for Israel. God just called them a worm. God calls them many things in the book of Isaiah. And so this high and lofty image that we have in chapter 42 of this faithful servant who does precisely the will of God is something that doesn't seem to quite fit with Israel. In fact, Israel's normally contrasted with God. When the subject comes up in the book, he says, you, O Israel, you broke your covenant and everything else, but I, I am the Lord, I'll keep my promises to Abraham and I'll, I'll still make you great or whatever. And so that's usually done in a contrasting kind of way. And so the servant in chapter 42 doesn't quite fit this. Also, when we look at the overarching context of this. It's important for us when we see a verse of Scripture that we don't take the verse on its own to try to understand what it's saying. We have to understand the verses around it. And when you come to a book like Isaiah, sometimes you've got to take into account several chapters. And if you look, what is introduced in chapter 40, verse 1, seems to flow all the way to chapter 44, verse 28, the very end of chapter 44. And so this is really one long dialogue that the Lord is having with Israel. And the overarching point, one of the overarching points of that dialogue is to explain to Israel how God's going to help them, how he's going to bring them back into the land, and how he is going to renew things. And so this servant is the one doing the renewing and so this is something that is used of God to renew Israel and this is therefore not speaking of Israel itself now there are some similarities Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the nations right in chapter 42 uh here we saw that the, he was going to bring forth justice to the nations is what this uh servant will do and then down here You know, the Lord tells him, I will give you as a covenant for the people, that also refers to the nations, a light for the nations. And so very clear that's part of this. Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, uh, when uh, at the call of Abraham here in, in the beginning of the chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 here, he says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth or nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so this mission is the same. In other words, this servant is accomplishing the mission that Israel had. So it's not just Israel. What other candidates are in the context? And here's one that's been put forth very plainly. Another candidate that's in the context is King Cyrus of Persia. King Cyrus of Persia is described this way at the very last verse of this section. It says uh, the Lord is speaking of his greatness and who he is and the things he accomplishes, and he says this about himself. He says, he is the one who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Well, King Cyrus of Persia is actually introduced in concept in chapter 41. Because in chapter 41, he asks the rhetorical question, who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dusk with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. Part of the encouragement of this section is that, yeah, Babylon defeated you, destroyed your city, destroyed your temple, took you out into exile But now I'm bringing one. I've stirred this one up from the east who's going to come trampling nations along the way. And this is speaking of King Cyrus of Persia. And when you read the whole context as a whole, just looking for this, you see, okay, that's interesting. So in a way, Cyrus is his servant. But the difficulty is this. Uh, Cyrus does play a role in all this, in reestablishing physically the nation back there. But this total renewal, this bringing of justice to the nations that is proposed as the servant's role in chapter 42 is kind of outside the scope of what he did. He didn't bring justice to all the nations. He wasn't given as a covenant to the nations. He was just another Gentile leader of another empire that God used to fulfill his purposes. So I also don't believe that this is Cyrus. Of course, you already know who it is. When we take a look at the context, we understand the truth. We understand that indeed, this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's a spoiler alert for the following sermons that we talk about this servant. And it's only in looking at the context of all of the servant songs that we can say that. Because we take a look at the entire context of the book of Isaiah, and we see this quite solidly. Uh, there's a servant song here in Isaiah chapter 42. There's one in chapter 49. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. And in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. This is referred to, of course, in the New Testament as speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we go to chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Uh, the Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Ever wonder why people say Jesus' beard was pulled out? This is it. This is a, a passage that's very clearly about him. And we take a look further. If we look in, of course, chapter 52 and 53 that we spoke about concerning the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, a passage that is referred to in the New Testament as clearly about Christ. And so as we go through the the servant songs, and there's five of them that I see, some will say there's four, but I agree with uh, Barry Webb, I put the reference in your notes there, that this fifth one in chapter 61 that Jesus quotes in a synagogue in Capernaum to the consternation of the leaders there, he quotes this and then assigns it to himself. He says, this is fulfilled right now in me, where it says the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and he stopped there and he rolled up the scroll. Of course it goes on. It says and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, etc., etc. So clearly a continuation of the servant motif is found here found speaking of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself indicates that this is about him. So this identity of the servant and the reason why I go through all this is you will hear Other people give suggestions for who the servant is. They will say, no, no, no. In Isaiah, where it talks about this servant, that's just Isaiah. That's just Isaiah. He had a hard life. He was abused by the leaders or whatever. This is all speaking about him. Or others will come along and say, no, no, speaking of Israel and Israel's plight and difficulty in the world and everything and bringing forth the word of God. And all those that will argue against the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilling these are those who would deny him entirely. And so it's important for you to understand why we know that this is about Jesus. So this servant is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the most important part of this for us and the relevance of it for us comes in this. What is the mission of this servant? What is the mission of this servant? The first thing we see is that the mission really concerns this word, justice. And for us to understand how this word is being used here, we have to go to the scriptures to, to see how it's used. This, used, this uh, word is used three times in the first four verses of this passage. And it is the word mishpat. Everyone say mishpat. Congratulations, you've learned Hebrew today. Well, this, this mishpat, this justice, remember what a word means in the scripture is dictated by the scripture. Many people will come along to the prophets, especially in our day, people who are pushing some kind of a political agenda, some kind of a social agenda that they have, and they will come quoting the Bible concerning justice, and they have no clue what they're talking about. They are bringing their definition of justice to the scriptures, pulling a verse out and trying to mash them together. And I say this to equip you against those who would do so so that you can say, no, actually, what justice means in the Bible is this, which is far greater and far better for you and I. Here's what it means used here in the beginning, look where it's used, and it's variously translated. It says, "'Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud, or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth.'" Okay, well, what does all that mean, Isaiah? You've used the word three times here in this passage. The way we understand what it means is we look at the context of chapter 40 to chapter 45. What does it mean in those passages? Well, if we go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 14, so in the first chapter of this context, he is speaking about, the Lord is speaking about himself Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? In other words, he's speaking of the greatness of the Lord in contrast to idols, by the way. He says, whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Well, the clear answer to this, he's asking these rhetorical questions, right? Who's measured the spirit of the Lord? Well, who could measure that? First of all, no, I've never seen anyone propose a way to measure spirit. And secondly, if you had a measure for spirit, some kind of a spiritual ruler to lay alongside something, could you build it big enough to measure the spirit of the Lord, who one who created all the others? No. In other words, what the Lord is establishing here is there's no one like me. I am far above and beyond and greater than every single thing that you understand in the universe. And therefore, He says, So, who did I consult when I made everything and made my plans? And who made me understand things? Who taught me justice? Who taught me knowledge? Now, the way this defines the word justice for us is this. Firstly, is that justice is defined by God. None of us have any right to come up with any other meaning or definition of mishpat other than that that's revealed in the scriptures. Okay, so that's where we start with this. Let's go to another one here. Here, uh, Israel holds up this complaint to the Lord. He says to them, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. So this is, he is putting words in in Israel's mouth, so to speak, that this is their concern. Does he know their concerns? He knows their concerns. And so he says, why are you saying this to me, that my way is hidden from the Lord, that my right is disregarded by my God? That word right there is justice. In other words, they're complaining that they're being ignored by God, that we've been put down, that we've been set aside, that we don't have our proper position in the world. And so this has to do with the things that are done being done right according to who God is and what he wants. And they're saying our justice, our position, our right to be your nation, to be the greatest nation lifted up above all the others in the world. This is being disregarded by you is our perspective. The next verse that's going to help us out is chapter 41, verse 1. It says, now he addresses the coastlands. Now in the Bible, the coastlands is everything else. The Jews were very familiar with Africa. They were very familiar with the Middle East and even with the Far East. They knew about those peoples and and who was over there. They knew about Europe and those people up there. Everything else is the coastlands of the sea. North America, South America, Australia, that's just all the coastlands of the sea. That's all that other stuff. And so when the Lord addresses them, he's speaking emphatically to the entire world, all the peoples that occupy. it. And so he says, listen to me in silence. You ever had to pull aside one of your children who's acting up a little bit and you, you have to tell them first, Be quiet and listen to me. Now, you don't always say it that kindly, (laughs) right? (laughs) Sometimes you're physically holding a hand over their mouth because they just won't stop talking. Because you're the adult. You know what needs to be said. You understand the situation. And none of their input is going to be meaningful at that point. Here's God. Listen to me. World. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Isn't that interesting? He calls them together for judgment. He calls them together for their judgment of having false gods. What follows in chapter 41 is God contrasts himself to these false gods. And he begins by asking the question, who is it that stirred one up from the east whom victory meets at every step? It was none other than him. It wasn't their false gods that did this. And so he is coming along saying very clearly what judgment, and that's what this word is here, this time is appearing as the word judgment, what justice is, is God deciding is God pronouncing upon people what is right and what is wrong. What is the proper order of things? Who is in bounds and who is out of bounds? And so when we look at these uses of this word together, it has to do with the proper order of things. And the first one we saw, it has to do with the proper definition of it, it's going to be given according to God. He's going to decide what this word means. Secondly, we saw that it meant the proper position of Israel in the world, according to the covenant that God had with them. And this third one is, it has to do with the proper order of the nations in their behavior and their standing with God and having God properly ordered as top and the false gods cast out. What this mission of the servant is, is about putting everything properly in its order. Putting God above all other things and all things in right relationship to him and to each other. And here's a quote I found very helpful by Barry Webb. He says this. You probably can't read it off in there, but it's in your bulletin. It says, viewed against this background, that is these chapters... The mission of the servant is a gigantic one. It is nothing less than to put God's plans for his people into full effect and to make the truth about the Lord, Israel's God, known everywhere, especially the fact that he is alone the sovereign creator and Lord of history. And that's what his argument is in the preceding chapters and continuing from this chapter forward as he's arguing, I'm the one getting these things done. I'm the one who brought Babylon. I'm the one who's bringing Persia. And I'm the one sending a servant and he is the one who's going to accomplish great things in the earth, ultimately the reordering of all things. And so this is our point. This is our point, is that Jesus Christ is assigned the task of reordering the universe according to the will of God. Now, let's look at how this is further illustrated in the chapters following, when chapter, er, in verse 5 of chapter 42, and i meant to be in chapter 42, Okay. In, chapter, or in verse 5 of chapter 42, thus says the God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people in it, and spirit to those who walk in it. Okay? God is the one who created all things. Therefore, he has the right over all things. And the right order of all things is that all those things would fall in line with his will. He gives breath to people on it. See, this is to turn upside down the notion of many people who would say, well, the Lord just made things and and he started everything and he just kind of sent the world off, spinning into the universe there to see what would happen. This was the view actually of many of the uh, founders of our nation was this deism was popular at that time. That's the idea that God is this great clockmaker. You know, he kind of wound everything up and kind of let it go. And eventually it's going to wind down and Jesus is going to come back and and restore order to things. But the whole book of Isaiah kind of rails against that, doesn't it? Isn't he saying, who who is it that raised up someone in the East to bring him over to conquer all these nations? So he's making it very clear what proper order is. In verse 6, he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Do you know where the first covenant is in the Bible? A lot of people will say, well, there was a covenant on Mount Sinai was the first covenant. And then others will, you know, a little more astute will say, no, 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 he made a covenant with Abraham. And you say, yes, that's right. But go back a little further. He made a covenant with Noah. And do you know when he made the covenant with Noah, he basically said, I'm renewing a covenant with you. And you go back and you look in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and you see, although the word covenant's not there, all the elements are there. He made a covenant with Adam and all of creation. And so he sends Jesus Christ. He says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. And we call it the new covenant. The New Testament calls it the new covenant. Does that have more of a meaning for you now? That he is given as a covenant for the nations. In other words, he is the great divine reset for all the world. All those descended from Adam, which is all those, right? So this is beautiful, good news. This is incredible news because the fact is that he has given this servant to make a new covenant to undo the effects of the sin in the world. Look at verse seven, open the eyes that are blind. Jesus literally did this. And this is the only miracle that Jesus did that was never done in the Old Testament. And he's opening the eyes of the blind. He's bringing out prisoners from the dungeon, those who are enslaved to sin, those who are in darkness, he is bringing out. So in this sense, this is a mission of renewal. Let's go on to verses 8 and 9. Look at this. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things Now I declare, eventually a whole new heaven and earth, as we see in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. It says, he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Who's seated on the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one making all things new. As As Paul described it, old things are passed away. New things have come. That this beautiful renewal is a theme throughout the book of Isaiah then, forty three nineteen, The Lord says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. We know that language goes back to making this way to Christ, making a way for reconciliation to God. And in chapter 48, it stated this way, you've heard it said, now see all this and will you not declare it from this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. How exciting is that? And that he has chosen to reveal these things to us through his word. That these are things not yet entirely unfolded. That these are things we can look into the scripture and we can see relevant information that's unknown to the world at large today. Despite all their advances in research and all their science and everything else, they don't know these things. But they have you. Look in chapter 65, verse 17 of Isaiah, you'll find this, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. No, this isn't just a New Testament concept. The book of Revelation is pointing you back. Remember, I said this. There's going to be a new heavens, new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. This is about renewal. And this is done. And look how he accomplishes this work through his servant. He puts his spirit upon him. He has the word of God that's going to... The the coastlands are waiting for his law that it's the word of God that he will do these things, yet he will do them gently. He's not going to be one that even cries aloud or lifts up his voice in the street. He never really stood up for himself during his earthly ministry. And while there were times where there were maybe thousands of people following him that he fed over there in the wilderness of Galilee, by the time that he was crucified, there was maybe 500 he could count on. He didn't fill stadiums. He didn't have a million views on YouTube. And you say, well, they didn't have YouTube. I I think if they had had YouTube, I don't think he would have had a million views. He wasn't doing that. He was here to do many other things. But all this we'll consider more later, including the suffering as, as part of his way of accomplishing all these things. This renewal is in line with what this passage means about justice, to bring things into alignment with the expressed will of God. This is what it was like in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned. It was all pleasing to God. He pronounced it even very good. So you see that Jesus Christ is assigned this task of reordering the universe according to the will of God. And now the question may become for us, what then is the relevance of these things? And here's why I really want to focus in on this, because sometimes we see things or we preach things that are just so high and lofty that it's difficult to see, you know, what as what it goes, you're You're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. You know, the idea that you understand these high and lofty things, the big movements of God and everything else. But yet, what does it really mean to me? What's the so what factor of the sermon? Here it is right here. The relevance of this is right here. This is the work that the Lord Jesus Christ is doing right now. This is the work that's in progress right now. You say, well, it sure doesn't seem like it. It seems like the world's rejecting the word of God and everything. Yes, but how many have been saved? And do you realize that the Bible describes those saved as formerly enemies of God and now brought near, reconciled to God on his side? Is that not the subduing of the nations? Is that not the word of God going out by the spirit of God and making for himself a covenant with all these people of all these nations? Here's how Peter described it in the first, really the first sermon of the church. He describes it very clearly this way. He says, uh, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So there he is at the right hand of God. So now he's speaking of after his ascension. And having received from the Father, that is the church, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Look at the grammar there. Sit at my right hand. Where is Jesus? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He ascended into heaven. He's described as sitting at the right hand of the Father. And it says, until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, until supposes two things here. First of all, that at some point he won't be sitting anymore. When is that? That's when he returns, right? The second thing it supposes is this, that something else is going on that is the trigger. I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, he brings the enemies of God into subjection to him. That's what's happening right now. He is, and and you say, well, it doesn't look that way because none of these nations are not Christian nations. They're not obeying God. They're doing these foolish things. Yes, but many people are following God more and more every day as the gospel is preached and they come to believe Jesus is presently conquering the nations. And this is described this way in Psalm 2. It's after his resurrection that he is the begotten one under whom all things will be subjected. And when we're, we get to Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, All authority and have knowledge been given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations." In Matthew chapter 10, he describes the fact, hey, look, I didn't come to be nice. I came with a sword. I came to divide. I'm going to split households. And then he tells us as his church, he says, look, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is an age of binding and loosing. This is an age of judgment. This is an age of division. And that division is happening according to the word of God. Jesus said this. He says, uh, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Okay. So his mission was one of salvation. But then he ascended into heaven. And he says this, um, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, and I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Has everyone around you received that word? Have they received from you the standard of judgment? And what makes the difference between heaven and hell for each and every human being? Have we effectively communicated that to our loved ones, to those around us? I hope you see now the relevance of, the, the incredible relevance of this truth that this is work that is happening right now. And the second, secondly, and, it, and it's like unto it, it just follows logically from it. The destiny of every human being is wrapped up in this work. That's how important what we do is as a church. Does that sound like it should take second place to t t-ball? Does it sound like it should take second place to the job? To the condition of the home? Should it take second place to any of these things? When in fact the destiny of every human being is wrapped up in the work that Jesus Christ is doing through his church. And you want to see how relevant this is. It is relevant to your own salvation that we all ought to examine ourselves to see, have we submitted to the one? And can I be described as his footstool or am I still running around with my own opinions, and my own ideas, and my own agenda? The Psalm two says, kiss the Son, lest he be angry. You perish in the way. And how is this relevant? Well, it's relevant to your sanctification, your confirmation to the image of Christ. The putting to death of sin in your body, you see how this is re- relevant because it's accomplished by His Word. Jesus is accomplishing that. And inasmuch as Jesus Christ gains a little bit of ground in your heart right now, it is the advance of His agenda to reorder things. Do you see if you understand Jesus' mission as one of reordering, you realize okay, first of all, He's reordering humanity. Let's take this one who's out of order. Let's bring him into reconciliation and reorder him. Now let's delve into that heart. Let's search his heart. Let's help him put to death the sin that's in his heart. And bit by bit and piece by piece, day by day, reorder that individual until finally they meet the Lord and are finished. He's reordering things. It has to do with our salvation. It has to do with our sanctification. It has to do with our mission because this is what the Lord is doing. This servant of the Lord, given as a covenant to the nations, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the one who can open the eyes of the blind, lead prisoners out of darkness, make all things new, and he can address the problems of all the people you want to talk to the gospel about, but you're afraid that their problems are too big. You're afraid that you'll bring them into a mess or that they won't be interested, or whatever your fear is. This surpasses all those things because he is the one that can accomplish his will. Let's pray about that. Father God, let us see and let us proclaim the relevance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us, Lord, be encouraged by this servant that you have called Let us understand that he was called in righteousness. He was called to proclaim justice, a reordering of things, making all things right, right with you. We would begin, Lord, by asking that you would help us to examine our own hearts to see whether we are right with you. And Lord, this day, I pray that if anyone here is found not in you, that you will work in their hearts to draw them to yourself, to show them the supremacy of Christ and the shortness of our time and the weight of their sin. And I pray, Lord, that they would be convicted and repent of it. I pray, Lord, for those who do know you this day. I pray, Lord, that you will gain ground in their lives, that you will guide their spirit to cooperate with you, to have it in their hearts, to align themselves with you in every possible way. Help us to be submissive to you, Lord, for we know That is from you, all blessings flow. And Lord, I pray this day that your name will be lifted up. That this day we will have a bigger notion of what it means that Jesus Christ brings justice. And I pray this day that we would see the urgency and the need to proclaim it to everyone. Lord, I pray that you'll encourage us, that you'll strengthen us, that you'll bless us mightily with your presence and make yourself known. Be glorified in this church today. Be glorified by your people, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.